Hello, I'm Barry Forshaw. I'm the editor of Prime Time, and I'm here to interview particularly a stellar name in, in, the, uh, in the field of Blu-ray commentaries and so forth, and a man whose books I read religiously, a man whose books I was so well-thumbed as I watched the particular films he's talking about that they need replacing, which I will probably do at some point. But before then, just a quick line about current releases. So Arrow, Indicator, 88, 101, Viavision Imprint, Studio Canal Network are all being as busy as ever. I've done a few things for them personally recently. Uh, I did uh, Murder by Decree with Kim Newman, which is possibly one of the best Sherlock Holmes films. And I may discuss Sherlock Holmes with my special guest in a few minutes' time. Don Siegel's Private Hell, 36. For Hell Night, I did a piece on haunted houses and films. And I did a film that I actually saw decades ago in this very uh, neighborhood, Islington. It wasn't called Il Senor Rosso de la Folia when I saw it. It was called Blood Brides, and it's Hatchet for the Honeymoon, Mario Barber, which is coming out finally in a very good uh, Blu-ray version. So, um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I've also done a commentary recently on the, um, the new Blu-ray of the silent version. But let's talk about my special guest. So, this is um, a multiple talent in many ways, a man of many parts, he is a writer, he's a presenter, he is one of the most distinguished and interesting Blu-ray commentators in, in not just Britain, the world. Uh, he's an actor. Uh, I don't quite know where we start, but let me introduce Jonathan Rigby. Hello, Jonathan. Hello, Barry. Lovely to be here. So we'll start by talking about, theoretically, the, the Barry's Blu-ray's column, online column, is theoretically about crime films, but we do stray into other areas as we may do today. But let's start with something you did a very good contribution to, The Hammer, Hound of the Baskervilles, which I take it is one of your favourite films. Um, I think it's certainly one of my favourite uh, Hammer films. And uh, I think where Sherlock Holmes films are concerned, it's pretty way up there, I think. Yes, I did a, I did a commentary for that with Marcus Hearn, didn't I? You did. Um, yeah, we enjoyed that. We enjoyed that one very much. That was, good Lord, at least five years ago, I think. I can't remember from that commentary how you dealt with the rather disappointing hound. Did you draw a veil over the um, the rather amiable dog, which was the hound? <laughs> uh, Colonel, I think his name was, uh, the dog. Um, I'm very, the funny thing is, you know, I'm very forgiving regarding things like that, and particularly regarding special effects that modern viewers find wanting. I'm, you know, I, I think one of the crucial things you have to do with films, and this is hardly a revolutionary statement, is you have to put them in context. Uh, you have to be able to watch them in context. And that dog um, has never unduly worried me. Um, the, the, the problem with that scene, actually, is the very first shot of the dog. And, of course, the first shot is unfortunate because first impressions are important. The very first shot of the dog, it does look a bit spindly standing up there, ready to pounce, doesn't it? <laughs> sort of spindly and a little underfed. Um, it doesn't look like and, it's going well, to tear somebody's throat out, does it, really? No, but it's that just that first shot. Quite frankly, I think after that, it's fine, yes, to be honest. Yes, it is. Now, you and I have worked uh, together recently in, in separate capacities, and I was involved with Kim Newman as well, on the, the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee, which was an oh. extremely popular box for which you did a definitive booklet. Well, 
<laughs> well, it's a bit. It's a bit like a mini book, actually. It's sort of a. It's a hundred pages of the of the of the damn thing, and um, I must say, I did enjoy doing that because having written the authorized history, this authorized screen history, um, good lord, to, to over twenty years ago now, I wondered if there's anything further I could say. But of course, the whole field of you know, film is, is such a rich one that, of course, there's always more you can say, on top of which one is 20 years older and you never watch a film with quite the same eyes you previously did. You know, there's always a new perspective on something. And also, also in the course of 20 years, you do actually pick up new information. Uh, and I was also able to talk... I, the, the book that I wrote about Christopher Lee previously was called Authorised, and it was authorised, and quite often people look at that word slightly askance, thinking it's going to be compromised in some way. Well, curiously enough, Christopher Lee was fantastically helpful, not obstructive in any way. There were only a couple of tiny, teeny, tiny little things that he asked to be altered. Um, but nevertheless, one thing one, one couldn't perhaps do in his lifetime was speculate on his personality to any degree. And his personality was very important regarding his strange love-hate relationship with the films that he made, and particularly the films that he was most famous for. And that, that little book has given me the opportunity 10 years on to sort of delve into that a little more than I could well, back then. You know, this rather reminds me, Sheridan Moore, you tell me that he'd written the first biography of, the first serious biography of Noah, Noah Coward, when Coward right. was still alive, and Coward said to him just before it was published, can you take out all the queer stuff, dear boy, because the ladies in the Shires don't want to know all that. So Sheridan Molly was obliged <laughs> to tell everything about Noah Coward being gay. Almost immediately he died. There was a slew of books which actually tell the truth. But it, oh, wasn't, it wasn't quite yeah. the same with Christopher Lee. Did you find that, for instance, the film that Kim Newman and I discussed was Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, which yes. is a very interesting film for a variety of reasons, but he esteemed it higher than it really should have been esteemed, correct? Well, Lee himself? Yes. Um, I don't, I, I'm not sure I ever picked up his actual opinion of the film. I think, I think particularly for um, an actor, and particularly if it's the actor whose name is above the title, I, you remember a film for, for the circumstances in which it was made, and, and that particular film was made in quite embattled circumstances. But the thing he really remembered it for was the fact that, as with quite a number of the films he made on the continent at that time, he didn't get to do the English dub. So, of course, in English, you hear an American dubber. Doing, I seem to remember, a, a reasonable sort of approximation of that Lee rumble, but, but with that sort of mid-Atlantic twang. And uh, even 40 years later, he was keen to re-record that track. And one particularly bizarre story is that I almost was involved in a re-recording of it, which didn't happen, as it turned out. Mm. But, uh, but yes, in 2003, he was quite enthused by the idea of uh, st still re-recording it. Right. Now, what about the... Um, you are very prolific in terms of the number of commentaries you do, which have a beautiful mix for me of the scholarly and the information-packed and the approachable, which is quite difficult <laughs> to pull off. Is this something you work on, or is it just a natural skill? Well, I think I think I've been very lucky in that the people I've done commentaries with, um, 
namely Marcus Hearn and uh, David Miller, who's Peter Cushing's biographer, and uh, Josephine Botting, and particularly recently, I've done a lot with Kevin Lyons. Those people are all, they're all old friends, really. So if you have a, that kind of rapport sort of in place before you get in front of the microphone, I think you're, you're halfway there. I think you're right. It's useful to have hard information. It's useful to be able to speculate and theorize about a film in a, in a slightly less grounded kind of way. But it's also very important, I think, to, um, to keep the viewer engaged. Um, anything dry or droning is going to turn people off. I remember there was a review of one, uh, of one uh, commentary that I did with Kevin on a very interesting amicus film called The Mind of Mr. Soames. I think that's the one it was which said we sounded as if we'd been coached to keep it light. <laughs> and, um, well, I can't tell you how horrified I was at the notion that anybody would coach Kevin and I to do anything. But um, I just thought this is, a, this is a misinterpretation. This is just how we sound when we sit talking about a, a film. And it can become quite light and uh, jokey, but without ever, I think undermining the film that one's looking at. I think it's very important, even if you're aware that a film is not necessarily particularly good, uh, but is interesting, as you say, regarding Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, I think it's very important to, um, to, to take a positive view of a film, because after all, there are fans of every film. Every film has fans, and some of them are prepared to fork out quite a lot of money to see them on Blu-ray. You don't then sit in a recording studio and tell them that it's rubbish, yes. and that they spent yes. their hard-earned money on rubbish. You, you just don't do that. You know, that's just, it's just simple politeness, isn't it? <laughs> now you, mentioned, you mentioned Peter Cushing, and of course, I can't remember if you actually did anything on the disc that Indicator put out of Cash on Demand. So... Do you, ah, yes. Do you particularly relish working on, I know that Cushing is a favourite of yours and Lee, do you relish working on their films rather than some which are assignments, shall we say? Well, actually, uh, David Miller and I did the audio commentary on Cash I and thought Demand. you did, yes. Yeah, and uh, yes, we enjoyed that one very much because that's a superb little mm. film. I mean, for Andre Morell as much as for Cushing. Oh, well, and there's another actor I adore. And... Um, uh, yeah, Cash on Demand. I think Brian McFarlane called it the best B-film ever made in the UK, and uh, he might not be far wrong. Um, yes, I enjoy talking about uh, Cushing films and Lee films, but I don't think I see any of the films um, that I'm handed as an assignment only, because, you know, as we've discussed, even not, you know, sort of objectively not very good films are always full of, uh, full of interest. And very often you can be handed a film. I mentioned The Mind of Mr. Soames. Now, there's a film I think I saw on television decades ago and uh, was really quite unfamiliar with, actually, prior to doing the uh, commentary. And you see, that was a fascinating sort of voyage of discovery, if you yes. like. And I, I, I hope that the people listening to the commentary felt the same thing. <laughs> Tell me, do you think that you and I have a tendency which isn't necessarily good for the average viewer? that we will be able to pluck out of a film things to praise. For instance, I think Indicator are doing Walk on the Wild Side. Now, with the best right. will in the world, that's a very compromised film, but it has a terrific yeah. Saul Bass title sequence. It has an Elmer Bernstein score. You and I would praise those elements and maybe downplay the fact that the film isn't really successful, do you think? I think I think one can one can hint at the compromises in a film and the fact that it isn't entirely successful, um, but I think that's what you do. You do you pick out 
the good stuff. And, you know, very often when you're talking about British films, for me, a lot of the good stuff uh, devolves on the actors because, you know, um, the actors in British films of a certain vintage, the acting is always um, a delight. And uh, so I think all, all films have something to commend them. That's a rather rash statement. All the films I've done audio commentaries on have all had something worthwhile about it's them. And, and that's what you do. You pick out the worthwhile features. But you mentioned the actors. So if we think of the American horror films of the 50s and early 60s compared to the British ones, the actors who win the Hammer Repertory Company were kind of non-pareil, were they not? America simply could not compete with the Hammer Repertory Company. Well, I think this is very noticeable when you reach the Roger Corman Poe films for AIP. You know, they had this magnificent central actor, Vincent Price, an actor who, even by Americans apparently, is quite often mistaken for being British. But you had um, lots of younger supporting actors who were American and just didn't couldn't get that gothic mode, you know. And I think... And it's very noticeable when you compare those films, excellent though they are in most respects, compare them with the Hammer films, for instance, the acting is very different. And I think Corman became aware of this because he started to realise that Vincent Price needed to be shored up by people like Basil Rathbone and uh, you know people like that, didn't he? Mm. Um, so, um, yeah, th the, there, is a, there is a stark difference, yes. The juve leads in Hammer films could often be playing Coriolanus at the RSC the same night. But they were happy to do those Hammer assignments, weren't they? Yes. Well, I'm, you mentioned that, and I just immediately think of, just off the top of my head, think of Richard Pascoe, you yes. know, who's in, who's in exactly Gorgon. Exactly who and, I was thinking of. <laughs> was it? Rasputin, the Mad Monk, and the Gorgon, and yet also is, you know, a great lion of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. You know, I think a film, for instance, a film like Psycho is marvellously acted, but then again, Psycho was in a somewhat different idiom to the Gothic films that Hammer was making at that time. Yes. So it required a different kind of acting, which American actors, of course, are expert and perfect for. Yes. Now, your own books, which I earlier referred to as my definitive go-to guides, are American noir, uh, American, I should say, American Gothic. Noir? Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. That's, <laughs> that's your field. That's my field. <laughs> uh, English Gothic and, and Euro Gothic. And also... Um, the, def the definitive biography seems to me of Christopher Lee, even though it's 20 years old. Did you yeah. find that when you'd put those books to bed and Marcus Hearn had published them, you were thinking, shit, I didn't put in X or I didn't put in Y? Oh, absolutely, of course. I mean, um, uh, English Gothic seems to be the book that still has the most resonance, having been the first one. Um and yet, of course, I, as the author, look back on that, and I had the opportunity to update it in 2015, but nevertheless, the bulk of it was written in the late 90s. And uh, again, I think it's it's to do, partly to do with the fact that you acquire different eyes as you get older, and I, I look at some of that book and I fret over the things I left out or fret over some of the things I said in it and all the rest of it. But, you know, that doesn't alter the fact that it's, it's you know, there it is, the book, it is what it is, and it made an impact and continues to do, it seems, and, and which is very gratifying. But, you know, being the author, I'm, one is very aware of what's wrong with your books. <laughs> you're a gothic. Eurogothic seems to me to be one of your major achievements simply because there's a more availability of the American and English product, but you must have done some hardcore research for the Eurogothic. Yes, I 
at the t- I think Eurogothic took me two years to write. And um, I look back on that now and think, uh, God, gosh, as quick as that. But at the time, I thought it was it was a huge and apparently intractable undertaking. It was, it, I mean, that is a huge uh, story, Euro horror films from the beginning up until the mid-'80s. Um, uh, but yeah, I, 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 that was a very satisfying book to do. And again, certain features of that book were again a voyage of discovery because, as you say, those a lot of those films are just not nearly as available mm. as the British and American counterparts. Uh, and yeah, that that one gave me great pleasure to write. And I think um, that's a that's a that's the kind of book you could murder someone with. It's a big heavy, <laughs> it's a big heavy tome, isn't it? And uh, that was gratifying to see uh, come into the light. I tend to look through it and tend to think there are so many films, it's like a shopping list that I haven't yet seen. So I was impressed how you managed to track a lot of them down. Oh, well, I guess I have my, I have my methods and my suppliers and all the rest of it. But that, that's a complaint that I've had now for getting on for 20 years, even with the original edition of English Gothic. People were saying, you're costing me a fortune here because of all these damn films I've not seen. I'm having to write off and buy them. On, and, uh, and I still get that complaint. It's a, it's a good-natured complaint. Of course. It is. Now, here's one where we can tie uh, getting towards the end. The final question together. So we both met Christopher Lee. You had a far close relationship. I only met him a couple of times fleetingly. And of course, your own acting career. Now, Christopher Lee, I think we can say, despite our admiration for him, was a difficult man. Did the fact that you were a fellow actor help in your relations with him? Yes, I think it did. Definitely. I think he felt, rightly or wrongly, that I understood. I know that sounds pompous, but he felt that as a fellow actor, he 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 felt that I understood what he was trying to do um, and understood the processes involved. Uh, I very much got that impression. He gave the green lights to my book. Uh, well, the book, I mean, he, he gave the authorised tag to my book when he read English Gothic, and I think he was rather pleased and flattered by some of my estimates of his performances in that book. Um, so then he actually got behind the book that I was writing, and um, we had a we had a marvellous time. He was a fascinating, complex man, um, and, of course, there was a lot of insecurity there, as there is with a lot of actors, um, and that was hidden by this rather... Um, what people thought was a rather stuffed shirt kind of public persona that he had. But in fact, in private, you know, he was a very, very funny, warm and witty and quite childlike man um, in private. It was, it was a fascinating contradiction in so many ways. I imagine, like me, I only met him a couple of times, but he began to sing to me at one point to demonstrate, <laughs> his, to demonstrate his operatic baritone. This was in a room full of people who'd come to the launch of his book, Tall, Dark and Gruesome, which you may have been at. I don't oh, yes. Yes, and he started yes. to sing. The, and the entire room turned around to look at the fact that Christopher Lee was singing a song from The King and I. Uh, did you ever get the, the baritone voice demonstrated to you? Well, we, we, we did. Well, yeah, so there were a few snatches of song, absolutely. His, um, his um, interest in opera singing was one of the more extraordinary facets of, uh, of his um, life and career, I think. Yes, yes. including his, his singing of heavy metal, which maybe left something to be Denied, one has to say. Um, well, you know, you see an awful lot of memes going on about what a badass he was because he killed Nazis in World War II and at the opposite end of his life was recording heavy metal albums. And I just think, I think this all springs from the tremendous public appetite to be told that actors are more than actors. There's a strange denigration of acting. You often see 
the phrases like, oh, he was more, and this applies to quite a number of actors, not just Christopher Lee, he was more than just an actor. And you think if you're an actor like Christopher Lee, that's all you need. Yes. You know, that is achievement enough. You're an extraordinary actor. You don't need to part of, make heavy metal albums. Is it the same <laughs> um, method that we find in Brando, who constantly disparaged the notion of acting as a kind of childish, pointless thing to do, but who clearly took his craft seriously in his early days at least? Well, it's certainly, well, you can certainly make an argument that it's a childlike thing to do, but I certainly wouldn't um, argue, wouldn't suggest that it's a pointless thing to do. Um, you know, I mean, actors give a great deal of entertainment. I mean, Absolutely. where would you people sit down in front of their televisions and are watching actors all the damn time, aren't they? Indeed. Well, now, your own acting career, how do you manage to juggle your writing, your commentating, your own acting career? Uh, do you wait for this, the things to come in? Do you wait for the phone to ring? Or are you campaigning for particular things? Um, I've reached the age where I don't actually campaign for things. Um, and it's not been difficult to juggle the two in the last 18 months, because like a lot of actors, not an awful lot has been going on. Although I did do um, a BBC item not long ago, which involved three days on the, the coldest Worcestershire hillside I've ever encountered. Um, but uh, yeah, so... People very, very often suggest that actors really ought to have another string to their bow. And it is very useful because acting is a difficult profession. You know, we all know the statistics about how many actors are out of work at any given given time. But the interesting thing about um, the, the extra string to one's bow, it is, it is very difficult to uh, actually sort of exercise them literally simultaneously. <clears throat> I remember back in, um, I was doing rep in Salisbury. I was doing time in the Conways <laughs> in Salisbury in 1997. And I remember vividly watching lots and lots of horror videos on my landlord's video machine back then, because of course I was in the process of writing English Gothic at that time. Um, but it's not often you can literally have them sort of um, coexist like that. No, indeed. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting process. But um, <clears throat> yeah, the, but the acting really, I, I seem to have become uh, my, my most my most successful um, acting has basically involved famous bald people um, <laughs> playing, playing Kenneth Horne and later on film playing uh, Harry Price, the ghost hunter in, in Borley Rectory. So, uh, yes, famous bald people. That's certainly one thing. <laughs> I well, I would, I would argue that although that's impressive enough in its own way, I would send anybody listening to this address out to buy all of the books by Jonathan Rigby and you'll find yourself thumbing them as much as I am and listen to every one of his particular commentaries. Thank you, Jonathan. Thank you, Barry.